Today I welcome Sally Ann Wang, High Master at St Paul's School in London. In this episode, I discuss the lack of funding in the arts, busting negative perceptions in today's snowflake youth, independent education's role in COVID recovery, and looking at the differences at boys versus girls single-sex education. The arts was hit hardest by the pandemic, and then earlier this year, the government slashed funding by 50% in higher education. What did you make of this decision? I think it's wrong. I think we've got to be very careful about the arts in this country because it's, we're really good at them. So we produce very high quality performing arts and visual arts, and it's a great export just in terms of the industry and tourists coming in. But I also think that we've got to be very careful about being too transactional about what we teach in schools. So there's a great drive towards STEM, which I can completely understand. And perhaps the pandemic has demonstrated that even more. How can you be in any way negative about what's been achieved in terms of the vaccines and in terms of technology? I think the pandemic also demonstrated how much we need the arts and in terms of our mental health and our creativity. I've said this before, you couldn't have got through those lockdowns without film, without novels, without music. And we've just got to be very careful that the next generation coming through don't lose out on that opportunity. Pupils in our schools may be very good mathematicians and physicists, and they may be able to do those things at university, but you could have the greatest artist or composer of his generation in a school right now, and they might never get access to exploring those talents. So I think it's a really high-risk strategy. Yeah. And do you think that's down to the way that the educational curriculum is set up? It's not skewed in a way that supports the arts in as much as it does the sciences? In the maintained sector, it probably comes down to resources, because once you get things like music A-level, where there might be single figures of pupils choosing to do it, rather than the large numbers you might get for, say, maths or English, that those subjects then close. So I think some of that is an issue. But I also do think there's been a slight, maybe that will change with the pandemic, but I think before the pandemic, I would have said that there is a pressure upon the generation in schools to do things that are useful, that will make them employable. And of course, the cliche is that if you work in performing arts, you won't get a job. And it's a fact that you'll earn less money than if you become a doctor or a lawyer. So I think it's also about those messages that we send out and how maybe it isn't just about earning money. It is about having a, you know, a fulfilling life as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting you're saying about, you know, yes, funding's being slashed, but our reliance on the arts as an escape is core. We've seen, you know, in terms of viewer figures, in terms of subscriber figures in all of those platforms, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Spotify, or the download books, you know, purchases of real books has gone up because people, and my wife has ditched her Kindle because just wanted the romance back, the enjoyment of receiving something. And I myself have now almost put my Kindle to bed because I now enjoy seeing these books in reality. So I do think that there is a misplaced weight on where we kind of position arts in education. And also there's an education for parents because they're almost caught in this catch-22 that, okay, I'm trying to get my kid through school to get to university to go out and get a job and earn money. Do you see that we need to change the way that we, we share this and communicate that with parents to say, look, it's not about money and it's not necessarily about university? Is that outdated? I think the question of university is a really interesting one because of fees and because of the amount of debt that people are in now when they go to university. And so they're bound to make that very pragmatic decision as to, is this degree actually worth it to me? And it could be that in some of the performing arts areas, it may not be. And actually, you may be better off just trying to 
train in a different way or become employed in a different way. So I think the fee issue with university has moved the goalposts. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens there because we've got a generation who have really had not the greatest experience in school because of the pandemic and a generation graduating now who had an awful lot of online teaching and didn't have a full university experience. And yet they're in debt for that in a way that I wasn't when I went to university. So I think that's a challenge. I think parents, one of the problems with performing arts at the moment in this country is that if you have parents with resources, if you have middle-class or wealthy parents, it's much easier to go into the arts than if you don't. Because you probably have that section, particularly at the beginning of your career, when you probably do need to get bankrolled by mum and dad, or you need to live somewhere with them. And for some students, that just isn't an option. So I do think there's a piece of work to do there in terms of access for all, because the independent sector are disproportionately influential in things like sport and performing arts. And that's because we have the resources, we give the scholarships, the children in our schools can be supported quite often by their parents. So there is a piece there to have a look at, you know, working class children who don't have those options and how can we give them access to performing arts education? That's very important. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the gap widening and obviously the independent sector has always invested heavily in the arts. And, you know, when you compare that to the state sector and it's, it's access to resources, you say about being funded, you talk a lot and you support this idea of partnerships and partnerships with the maintained sector to ensure that resources skills, access to facilities, and maybe funding is shared from the private sector into the state sector. What are you doing to bridge this gap? I was talking about that this morning on the radio. So at HMC, which is the the group of schools of which I've been chair for the last 12 months, every school in HMC, 100% of the HMC schools have a state school partnership. So that can manifest itself in all kinds of different ways. And it will, in every single one setting, it will cover lots of things. So that's about shared expertise in teacher training, in classroom management. I remember when I was head of JAGS, we would teach children from the local state school in the classics because they didn't offer that. But we didn't offer psychology. So the girls who wanted to read psychology at university went over to the state school to get some teaching there or or to have help with interviews. I think there's all kinds of intellectual property that is already shared and costs people nothing. And there's also the use of resources, which is now incredibly common. It's ubiquitous, you know, people using sports halls and swimming pools and performance areas, you know, theatres, music blocks that they don't necessarily have in the state sector that we do. But I think what would be great to kind of bring more third parties in for resources. So at St Paul's, uh, we're part of the West London Partnership and two of the big projects that we've had running in terms of closing the gap during the pandemic One is something called Collett Mentoring, named after our founder, John Collett. And a couple of former pupils, fairly young former pupils, had their own company with an app that was to do with tutoring. And they offered the technology for that to work with us to provide peer-on-peer mentoring for free across the independent and state sector. So we had a really part of our community because they were pupils here. But we had a kind of third party coming in and saying, we've got this technology, you've got the pupils, you've got the teachers, can we work together? So that was a third party coming in. The other thing we've done most recently is we had a STEM catch-up school in July where our state partners in the West London Partnership nominated pupils who had perhaps had the worst experience of the pandemic and missed the most, perhaps because they've been ill or something to do with their background. And they came in and were taught science and maths by our teachers. But some of the funding for that and also for Collet Mentoring came from the Mercers, which is the livery company 
we do have resources at St Paul's, not all independent schools do, but where if you can bring in a third party to maybe fund some of this work and bring the expertise together, I think that's quite exciting. And I think more of that is going to be needed post-pandemic as we try and guarantee recovery for the young people in schools at the moment. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's always seemed like an obvious thing to bring in third parties, to bring in, you know, private businesses and expertise because... You know, they have the skill set, the resources. What's been the reason behind not maybe going down that route? I'm not sure. Um, I do wonder whether those of us who run schools haven't always thought commercially about bringing in expertise and partners. And I do think people ask questions about, you know, reputational risk and you have to be very careful of the people that you're working with. But not as you know, none of that is insurmountable. So I'm hoping that there's a generation of heads and teachers now who will do more of this and everybody will benefit from it. Yeah, no, I agree. I think getting private businesses involved in everything to do with education beyond the private sector. I think we all have a a greater goal here, which is actually helping education, you know, wider than the privileged few that get to go to a great school like yours. I want to ask you a big question here. If you could wave a magic wand over education and change three things to make it more relevant and fit for purpose, what would they be? I don't have an answer to this, but an area that I think needs exploring is the timing of the examinations in the UK. Um, And it would take so many people to collaborate to change that. I'm not really talking here about the content of GCSEs or any of the skill sets they measure, although that is an issue too. But I do think we put our young people through the first set of public exams in a lot of subjects at a time that usually coincides with the most difficult time for them in working out who they are anything like mental health issues or confidence issues are going to come at that same time. So I don't feel the same way about A-level, but I think those post-16 qualifications are not timed to fit with the best time in a young person's life. So I would want to look at that. So that's one. I got asked this question by the test the other day, and I said I would buy a musical instrument for every child in the country and give them the chance to learn it. So that's, as you know, that's partly my own kind of agenda, because I do think the performing arts are so important. But there's also a lot of evidence to say that learning a musical instrument stretches your mind, uses different skills, helps your memory, helps your hand-eye coordination. And I just think that one thing alone, if every child played a musical instrument and was taught a musical instrument properly for two or three years, I think that would be an investment for them. Obviously, the potential investment of having that gift for life playing the instrument, but even if they didn't, just investing in their learning at that point in that way would be good. And then the third one, I don't know, that's really tough. I've got you two. What about skills? I mean, skills is always talked about that's missing. You know, it's having these skills that are relevant maybe for what employers are looking for. So I think probably communication skills, which we do do very well in the independent sector because pupils generally in in the independent sector, not just the independent sector, but particularly in the independent sector, they have opportunities to lead, to speak, to debate, to negotiate. And I've often said to pupils before, I have not been asked about my A-level grades, unlike Kevin Williamson. I can remember them. I've not been asked for my A-level grades for a long time. But every time I speak to somebody, every time I meet somebody for the first time, they're judging me. So that kind of interpersonal skill of just talking to people, I think it does happen naturally, but we probably could formalise that more. Yeah, no, I agree. You've challenged a common description of today's young people as snowflakes. Would you say that today's youth are actually tougher than we would give them credit for? A hundred percent. Yeah. So. When I challenged that, that was almost 12 months ago now, and it's been a long 12 months. So that was at the HMC conference in October. 
And, and I said, don't call them snowflakes because they've just been through so much. Um, I said no generation since the war. I didn't include the war generation, although a lot of Daily Mail readers did write to me to point out I hadn't fought the war. No generation since the war has had so much disruption or has had so much taken from them than this generation. And I think Pete, I'm 50. People my age were lulled into a false sense of security that the time we were living in, which was if you lived in Western Europe, was without war that you could notice, was without plague, was without famine. We thought that was normal. The truth is that's not normal at all. And that most generations are going to face something like that. So when I said that in October, I think the adults now really understand better than they, not because I said it, but better than they did back in October, what has happened to this generation and that it's been really tough for them. And I spoke to the boys at St. Paul's, our leavers in June. And I said, in many ways, you kind of had a gift. You know, you've already faced something difficult. You've already had what you thought was certain, you know, your exams, your university entrance, you had all of that wobbled and you've coped and you've stayed cheerful and you'll always be able to do this. And I've also said to them before, don't be told that you're a lost generation or that you're never going to achieve anything because of this, because actually the generation who were their age during the Second World War is the same generation who put a man on the moon. So it could almost be the opposite that, you know, because they've seen real problems now, they might go on to achieve fabulous things because of that. So I have great faith in them. I think they're very exciting young people and it's going to be fascinating to see what happens next. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. My two eldest children have been caught, both one at GCSEs and one at A-level. So I know very much, you know, having lived it firsthand, that it's been incredibly difficult. And uh, I'm, I'm always frustrated at the media coverage and just people's perceptions and gossip about, you know, particularly about teachers' grades and how oh, they didn't really work for them. I can tell you this. I mean, my daughter at A-level practically taught herself in one of the subjects. She had to, she had to dig deep. And I do not know how she managed to come out with what she came out with. So anybody looking in, it's easy to read the tabloids. It's easy to read what the media wants you to listen to. But I agree with you, the resilience, the courage, the focus, not just the academic side that they've had to do, it's the mental health side. It's the relationships, the growing up, the personal things that they have struggled with that we see inside as a family that, you know, other families have also experienced. So I agree. I think we need to be promoting this, not, not as the forgotten generation. This is the resilient generation that have actually come through something quite extraordinary. They have. And I think there's another element there in that, particularly when we came back to school in September and then again in March, they were so pleased to be back in school and to see each other. So I think they've also become a generation who don't take education for granted because they had it threatened. And they don't take each other for granted. They actually understand the value of interaction and, and social interaction better than anybody before, which, again, I think makes them very interesting as they go through all the things that we just thought would happen naturally. They know might not. And so they'll value them more. They're adaptable and flexible. And I think that's also shone a spotlight on the world of work and actually how we as adults have seen jobs that we've been doing for life in a place. It's now thrown up and gone, well, we can be more adaptable. We can be flexible. I can work from anywhere potentially and still be as productive. So the world has figured out a way to almost bust the shackles of what we thought that the world of work should be. And we've got a really good opportunity, I think, coming out of this pandemic to go, 
we can't go back to pre-pandemic ways of doing things. I think there's some real good innovation opportunity. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think we don't want to go back. So although a lot has been lost, we've definitely found new ways of working. So for example, HMC, the London division of HMC, which is all the heads of independent schools in London, it's a big division. When we had live meetings at each other's schools, if you've got 15 people there, that was great because it was quite difficult to travel. We've had meetings that we've been able to set up at very short notice because you know, we were responding to something like new COVID regulations and 45 people on the call. So suddenly more people are interacting with each other, more people are sharing experience. And we have also missed getting to have a cup of coffee with each other and chat about our kids and our dogs and our holidays. So that has to go back in. But we would be really losing something if we lost all of those remote connections as well. On the back of the pandemic and COVID-19, you've suggested that independent education is needed more than ever to heal the UK. Beyond obviously the financial resources you have, what is it that the independent sector offers in regards to this, which state schools don't? So I think there's a few things there. I mean, I, I think lots of state schools do, actually, and there's great diversity across state schools. Again, I think I said in my HMC speech that I think we're almost a life raft for some things that need to be preserved for the nation. I think we talked about performing arts and music and drama and sport. If you look at the success of the Olympic team and the number of those medalists who went to independent schools, not necessarily because they were privileged, but because independent schools had spotted them and trained them and gave them scholarship. So I think we can preserve very special qualities for the nation and take them through to the next stage because we have some choices and some resources that aren't universally available in the state sector. Independent schools have also been very strong historically on character education and the whole child. So things like leadership opportunities, volunteering. And I think that's needed now more than ever as well. We've put a lot of time into those things, a lot of time into things like mental health and pastoral care. We have, I mean, it's obviously it's a challenge as well because Obviously, there are people who don't like independent schools and will always take that view and just say we'd better if we didn't exist. But people are also interested in us. And that gives us a platform to talk about some of these issues that perhaps not all schools have. So I think those are the strongest elements for me of the responsibility that we have in, in the next few years. And you mentioned service. I think service is missing and something we work with schools all over the world and it suddenly comes out of America. America are very good at this, actually. And they embed service you know, giving back to others, giving back to the community. And almost the, I think the student generation of self-obsession, because it's me, 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 how I look and everything else, is again, creating this other issue where I'm so interested in myself, I haven't got time to go out there and do that. What can we do to bridge that gap and get more kids and parents as well, thinking about service, doing things for others? A lot of the partnership work that goes on in independent schools feeds into that. So the Collet mentoring I was telling you about, the app, the St. Paul's boys put in literally thousands of hours of mentoring during the pandemic. And again, the technology helps because that can go on in evenings and weekends and they don't have to travel to see people. So I think partnership work leads to that. One of the things that we're going to try at St. Paul's, and I'll you know, maybe talk to me about it in another 12 months time, is we're actually putting in a kind of a character curriculum stream. So schools are very used to thinking about the academic curriculum and now increasingly the co-curricular programme. But we're putting in a character curriculum programme and we've appointed a head of character curriculum so that we can actually track every pupil's involvement in things like volunteering and leadership. And so people don't fall through the gaps. 
all schools like mine will have volunteer programs. And then you get really exceptional young people who will spend hours on that. But you might have some who never go anywhere near it. And then you haven't given them that same opportunity. So having it in a, in a more formal, structured way with a member of staff who's overseeing it, I'm hoping will make a difference. But that's just starting in September. So I'll be able to tell you more about it in the future. And we need to try new things. Many schools, again, US, they take a term out. And sometimes it's just maybe half a term where the kids go out and solve real world problems. They'll bring all of their experience, all of what they're learning across multidiscipline, multi-department to go, we're going to go and solve this problem, which I think is a great thing. We're obviously restricted. Again, I'm going through beyond just independent sector here, but all education in the UK. We're obviously restricted by timetables, curriculum. Do you think there'll ever be a point in time where we can let all kids at a certain age go off into the community and spend, say, half a term solving a real world local problem? So that probably fits in with what I was saying about the 16 plus curriculum, I think, because and this is nothing to do with the type of school, as you're saying, but we, we do end up on a bit of a treadmill in that everybody's moving towards GCSE and then everybody's moving towards A-level. And that's a pre-qualification access to university. So you just, you just never kind of stop. So I think it would need us to helicopter up and look at the whole structure, but I think it would be worth it. A lot of independent schools do foreign exchanges, for example. My own son, when he was in year 10, he went and spent some time in America and he had his partner come over and stay with him in Kent. My first headship at Kent College, we had exchanges with Australia and with Maine and with New Zealand. And just we were allowed within the independent sector to say, do you know what? You can miss six weeks of school because I trust you to catch up or I will help you catch up so that you can go and have a different worldview for a bit. And that will help our community because your exchange partner's coming in here and we'll learn from them and also we'll learn what what you've learned out there. Um, So it can be done, but it requires quite a lot of commitment from the teaching body and from the pupils to still be ready to take the GCSEs. So that the easier thing would be what you're suggesting would be almost the structure to change. Which is hard in the maintained sector. In the independent sector, we have more control. So again, being able to introduce those pilot programs to do that would be relatively easy. Just got to decide you want to do it and give it a go. We've seen the divide widen this year's A-levels and GCSE results between private and state. Private school resources and parent influence often buying a safe passage for their children's education. This can't be good. Do you think we're ever going to repair this gap that's appeared because the independent sectors had access to better resources? One, I'm a great believer in silver linings, as you know. So I think one of the silver linings is it probably has drawn attention to that. There is no doubt that the independent sector responded much more quickly to the pandemic than the state sector did generally. You know, I talk to colleagues and friends who have children in maintained schools, that first lockdown, sort of March 2020, there wasn't a lot of online learning going on in the state sector, whereas the independent sector got to it really quickly. And I think some of that is to do with resources. I was head of JAGS at the time, and I was very lucky because a brilliant guy called Lawrence Wesson, who was, is the academic deputy there, he decided that we should all train to use Teams. And he had no idea the pandemic was coming, and it was all there. So some of it is to do with resources, but a lot of it is to do with just having the flexibility to make decisions quickly and say, I want to do this for my school, and I don't need to go and ask anybody else's permission. Hopefully, that's something that will be learned. And I think that's probably one of the biggest factors. The other factor, of course, and this is not a blame factor, it's just a truth, is that the proportion of independent pupils who just had access to good Wi-Fi, laptops, technology would be higher 
than a cross-section of maintained school pupils. And I know that in independent schools like mine, where there were bursary pupils who didn't have laptops, we gave them the laptops. So I think there's a big question there about giving them the technology. And I think that needs to be answered. And possibly the independent schools shouldn't have to apologize for having responded really well to the pandemic. It shouldn't be a leveling down, it should be a leveling up. And looking at the things that worked for us and how those can be rolled out so that they're in the maintained sector, I think that's the answer. And that's where we do need to um, lean on businesses and private companies to support and help. There's a bigger shared interest that they need to take responsibility for because they can actually make absolute impact and change without it really affecting their bottom line, which is the thing. Things like recycling. I mean, I, I know there were, there were some independent schools that did a kind of laptop amnesty where parents and neighbours could give, a, give laptops they weren't using, which would then be distributed to young people who needed them. So it doesn't have to be very costly, but it has to be organised. It has to be organised. Before working at St Paul's, you worked at um, James Allen Girls School. What was the transition from an all-girls school to an all-boys school like? I have loved working with boys at St Paul's. It, it is different. There is a different tone. There is quite a calm, fun environment to be in, which I'm really enjoying. The fact that I'm a woman is of very little interest to the boys here at all. <laughs> um, they are interested in the fact that I'm high master and what I might be doing about stuff and what I might have to say about stuff. But the fact that I'm a woman, they're, they're pretty indifferent too. And I would say that's true of my male colleagues as well. So I've been made incredibly welcome. I do think, though, what happened with Everyone's Invited, particularly where we're talking about things like misogyny, I, I do think I'm uniquely placed, if you like, to talk about those issues as a female leader within um, a boys' school environment. And I've had the opportunity to do that. And you can do that with a position, you know, from a lived experience and in a way that a male high master wouldn't have been able to. So, so some of that has been quite good timing. It's been good. What would you say is the most stark difference you've noticed going from all girls to all boys? I do think the boys at St. Paul's have more in common with the girls at Jags than they might have with boys at other schools because actually both of these schools are very academic, highly selective schools. So in many ways, their priorities and their ways of working are very similar to the Jags girls and would look more different from boys that weren't in that kind of environment. I think that there are some differences, though. Um, the noise on the corridors is at a different tone. <laughs> so all tenor and bass instead of soprano. I do think the boys, I, I don't want to stereotype them, really, because they're, they're all different people. But their co-curricular offer is really important to them. And I, I don't know whether that's something that was because of the pandemic, because it had been taken away by the pandemic. And so I came in to see that. But their sport, their ability to be outside, to be running around, to be involved in music, to be competing with each other in, in house events, that really, I wouldn't say it didn't matter to the girls at Jags, it did. But I think that's one thing I've spotted. It's totally essential to them. And that's got to be a priority for us in, in looking after them. You touched on you being a female teacher, but the first female head teacher, high master. Do you find that difficult to relate to the male students? And has this presented any barriers? So I think I probably relate to them in a different way because I haven't been a teenage boy and I had been a teenage girl. So that's slightly different. I mean, as we were talking about before, I've got two sons, I've got two brothers. I've grown up in very male households. I've not been a head or a teacher in an all boys school, but I've been a governor of two all boys schools. So I spent a lot of time with teenage boys and listening to things that matter to them and seeing their development. I have a lot of experience and expertise. I can't pretend to say that I know what it feels like to be them. But in some ways, that's refreshing for them, too, because I do look at things in a different way. 
yeah, I feel very comfortable with that. It's, it's not an issue at all. Have you noticed whether single sex education suits boys or girls better or is single sex education just better? Yeah, the great thing about independent education is that there are just different models to choose from. So I think there are some young people who are better suited to single sex education for different reasons and some who are better suited to co-education. And I don't think any school could pretend or should pretend to be best for everybody. And I think there's family context to take into account. So, you know, I went to an all girls school, but I had two big brothers. So I had no fear of boys. I knew what they were. So if I had been in a very female environment, I might have had a different experience. So I think parents have to look at that. I think if this was a boarding school in the middle of nowhere and the boys never met any young women, that would be different. But we're in the middle of London. We work a lot with St. Paul's girls. I think you've got to look at the whole picture. I do think there are advantages to single sex education in terms of the issues that you talk about and that you can become experts in raising young men or experts in raising young women. And in some ways, it's easier, you know, as a head when you're writing assemblies and you're trying to think about your audience, it simplifies it in that respect. The cliche would be, and I don't believe this, but the cliche would be that single sex education is better for girls because they're not, you know, they're not spoken down to by the boys and they will choose STEM subjects more and so on and so forth and that boys are civilized by the presence of girls. But that hasn't been my experience. The boys here are very civilized, actually, even without the girls. And as I say, they do get access to interaction with the girls through our partnerships with other girls' schools. Sally, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thanks ever so much for finding the time. Thanks ever so much. Thank you, Simon. Lovely talking to you. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.